The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. So thank you for being here. My name is Jeremy Pierre. This is, uh, this is, this workshop is called I Am Worthless, and it's, it's helping people address uh, insecurity and self-hate, okay? So this is not really one of those problems, at least in my ministry, where people come in with this as a presenting problem. Like, can you help me? I hate myself, okay? It's more they come in because they're depressed, they come in because they're anxious. They come in because their relationships are for some reason falling apart. And they're just trying to figure themselves out. And in the course of that, you, you just hear a lot of their self-talk. And you are quickly able to realize how deeply and profoundly, if they're honest with themselves, they hate themselves. Okay? And I want to talk to us about how you address this in a biblical way. So I need God's help. And so do you in this next hour. This has been a long day for you already uh, and for me as well. So let's just ask God for strength and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we are grateful that you are limitless in your strength. You don't slumber or sleep or get drowsy, Lord. You have no limitations, Father. You need nothing from us or from anything in your creation. But Father, we're not, we're not like you in that regard. We are, we are limited, we are weak, and we lack strength. And so we ask you to lend us your strength. Lend it even physically, Lord. Give us good attent attentiveness. But Father, mostly we pray for the strength to recognize from your word what's true. And for us to just go out of this room a little bit more equipped uh, to, to discern and see what's going on in somebody's life, maybe even our own lives, Lord, regarding this particularly nefarious way that our flesh and, and Satan trips us up. Father, that, that a way that feels like humility, it, it, it feels like it's not doing any harm to anyone or it's not dishonoring you, Lord, but, but we want to see ourselves from your perspective. So will you help us do this, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to make it really clear here that, that Jesus loves people who hate themselves, okay? Jesus loves people who hate themselves. Let me, let me just say a couple introductory words, and then I'm going to open with an illustration before we get into the guts of the outline, okay? I've come to appreciate more lately how destructive and ensnaring self-hate can be through a number of different friends uh, that I've been helping. And... There's one particular friend who just comes to mind who is absolutely paralyzed by, by self-hate, okay? It, it, he struggles with mental anguish a lot. He tries to stay focused on things, but this narrative of how terrible he is just kind of takes over his mind. The tough thing is, is you look at this guy, he's tall, he's got an awesome head of hair that I'm jealous of. He is incredibly intelligent. I don't know anyone who reads the Bible more than this man. I don't know anyone who has witnessed to more people than this man. This guy takes stands even at his secular workplace in such a way where he won't compromise on some of this more recent transgender stuff. But he does it with such a deep trust from the people. He knows they, they know he loves them because he's so invested in them 
that even transgender coworkers say, that guy's amazing. Like, I, that, he's a Christian, but he's not like those other Christians. Like, this guy, honestly, from the outside looking in, he just appears to have it all together. But he recently shared with me that he'll, he'll, he'll actually go to the bathroom and throw up before he goes to church because he's so nervous that he'll be rejected. He'll, he's so nervous that other people will share the opinion that he has about himself. So how do we understand this mystery? How, how does, how does self-hate become such an entrenched cycle of thought for someone like that? How do you get somebody like that out of it? Do you just tell him how amazing he is? Do you, do you rebuke him for hating himself? How do you, how do you help him see this? That's, that's, that's what I want us to, to grab onto today, okay? So, that's a word about the importance of this and the urgency of this. And, and friends, in our culture, in, in the ultra-sensitive, identity, reflective, inner mindfulness type of, of, of cultural thing we have right now, you're going to be seeing more and more self-hatred because you're going to see more and more deficient people being more and more aware of their deficiencies, okay? So, it's an important issue to be equipped for. But let me tell you a personal story as my final way of introducing this before we get to our main point. I remember when I was, I remember when I was in junior high school, okay? And uh, there, there, we were a small Christian school and we couldn't afford a football team, so we had a soccer team. So the fall sport was soccer. And I don't know if there's soccer players in here, but you all fit a certain profile and a certain culture. Like these guys, they're the stereotypical soccer players. They've got trim, amazing bodies. They're tan skin. They had like blonde hair. They had to constantly swoop out of their things. They're just, they were like the Greek gods of autumn, okay? And all of this little Christian school, the whole community would come out and watch these soccer games. They'd hang on every move that these guys were doing. And in other words, all the attention and all the communal value was loving and valuing what these guys embodied and soccer season is tough for doughy boys that like books like me okay and uh and i just remember in junior high just realizing and being super hyper conscious of the fact that i did not fit that profile and i desperately longed to fit that profile of what the community valued so much. I was on the outside, and it filled me with dissatisfaction. And so one evening, my, my, I remember my dissatisfaction sort of boiled over, and I indulged in something I'd actually never done before. And I went up in front of my mom, and I said out loud what I'd thought many times. And I just said in front of my mom, I hate myself. And my mom's reaction really surprised me because my mom is a super sweet woman. My mom is soft and understanding. My mom never says a cross word to anyone. She's one of the most considerate, understanding people you could ever imagine. And so when I looked up at my mom, I was expecting her to comfort me and to tell me that everything was going to be okay. And instead what I saw was anger across her face. 
And what she said to me was fascinating and a wonderful bit of theology, actually. She said, you have no right to hate yourself. It's really fascinating. I, it took me like a long time to even figure out what that meant. I, I, have, I have no right. I'd awoken some deep offense in her. I'd expected pity, but I think what I got was something far better. Now, by the way, I'm not recommending that as a counseling uh, methodology necessarily. I'm simply illustrating. We're going to unpack that example as we go. But I'm simply illustrating that I've, I'd offended something in my mother that I think actually showed she had a good biblical sense of the situation. So let's unpack this together. The experience of self-hatred. Insecurity and self-hatred are ways our hearts respond to the world that aren't mentioned in Scripture in their specifics. Okay? You can't look up self-hate. You can't look up insecurity in Scripture, in your concordance, and find a description of what these are. Okay? So we have to think, okay, what framework does Scripture give for us to look at this experience of self-hate? And so here's the framework. You have to appeal to God's design. God designed us to respond from the heart to the situations he's placed us in. Okay? God designed us to respond from the heart to the situations he placed us in. That's biblical counseling 101. Okay? So when, we, when we're trying to address self-hate, this is, the, this is the, the research question we're asking. Okay? How should we understand self-hate as an expression of the heart? That's what we're asking. How should we understand self-hate as a, we could say, as a wrongful expression of the heart? Okay? That's the question we're trying to answer together. And so, to get there, we have to construct a theological vision of who we are. So, let's start with this first piece. We were made to perceive ourselves the way God perceives us, okay? You heard me say perception a lot this morning, okay? That just simply means the way we see ourselves, what we believe ourse about ourselves, and the values we measure ourselves by. That might be, give you a little bit more specifics. That might be helpful. What we believe about ourselves and the values we measure ourselves by. That's what I mean by perception. The way we, what we think about ourselves. We were designed to perceive ourselves as God perceives us. If you have your Bible, you either pull it open or open it up and go to Genesis chapter 1. I want to look at verses 26 through 31 and just point something out in the very first chapter of Scripture that's foundational for us. Okay. So flip or scroll to Genesis 1. Isn't it funny how we've returned to scrolls? Like scripture, scripture is now on a scrolling thing. It's interesting. That was absolutely terrible. Thank you. Thank you. Very affirming. I like affirmation. Give me more affirmation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, here's what I want to break down. We are about to look at the very first conversation to occur between God and this new thing he created called man. And what I want you to pay attention to as we dive in here is what is the topic of the very first conversation 
between God and man? Is it pizza? Is it Cleveland sports? Is it God? What is it? Okay. So, first, we get a little glimpse into the intra-Trinitarian conversation, into God's mind in verse 26. Then he makes man. Then he has a conversation. Let's just read it together. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Let's stop there. Okay. So let's, if you just do a quick analysis of what's actually going on, verse 26 is God's thoughts about man. This, the, the thing he's about to create, this creature in his image he's about to create, you have it laid out what his intention and design is. And what is it? Look down at the verse. How would you describe it? What are his thoughts about man? That he's in his image. Okay, we got that. What's that? Yeah, it describes his function. It describes his purpose. I want him to rule in these particular ways. So like I mentioned, I think this morning, God made us as physical representatives of his unseen presence so that we would act and rule on his behalf as physical beings. So you're, glint- you're getting a glimpse via scripture, inspired scripture, you're getting a glimpse into God's mind. This is what he thinks about humanity. Then verse 27 is he made them. Okay. So that's the action point. And then verse 28 Look at the language. Do, do you recognize it? This, the scribe had to be like mildly annoyed as he's writing this down. Like, I just wrote this. But it's fascinating and amazing. Because what the first, the, the topic of the first conversation between God and man is what God's intention was for man. The topic was mankind himself. God's purpose for man. So I'm not trying to make the argument that means man's more important than God and blah, blah, blah. All I'm saying is this. God knew that Adam had to be given his words for Adam to understand who he was. Does that make sense? Adam had to be given God's words, the content of God's minds, expressed through verbs, through words, verbal cues, in order for him to correctly perceive himself. That's super important. Because here's what I want to point out. Adam did not come pre-downloaded with that knowledge. He didn't come pre-downloaded with that knowledge. Adam did not natively perceive himself accurately. He had to have the words of God given to him for him now to see himself rightly. So unlike when you buy a new iPhone and you basically mortgage your children's future, okay, you can tell that I was the husband in that example this morning, okay? When you buy a new iPhone, that comes pre-downloaded with iOS, okay, with the, with the operating system. You just touch the apps and it walks you through like you're some kind of a moron, like, welcome to iPhone. Are you stupid? Yes. And then it just gets you all up and running so you know how to use it. 
That is not how it worked with Adam. He didn't come pre-downloaded with an operating system. It had to be downloaded via words. So, folks, this is, there's a lot of theology just in that reality that we have there. So, Adam had to understand himself rightly by accepting what God said about him. Okay? Adam only understood himself rightly by accepting, by receiving what God said about him. So, remember what I said. Self-hatred means something has gone wrong with my perception of myself. Because God doesn't hate me. At least, at least his hatred certainly isn't characterized by the same concerns or values that, or, or evaluations that my hatred is based on. So I guess what my point to you for now is self-hatred means that I'm not adequately receiving those words. Okay, I'm not giving due weight to those words. I'm giving weight to some other words, to some other source, to some other... Uh, a standard of evaluation. So, I forget what's specifically in your packet. Do you have this in here? Self-hatred is your heart's attempt. You have that? Okay. Self-hatred is your heart's attempt to condemn the person you are in preference for who you wish you were. Okay? The problem is, who you wish you were is only a summary of your desires. It's only a summary of the things that you think bring life that you don't have or you don't find yourself having. You find yourself lacking and therefore there's this impulse to condemn. Okay? So you form your opinion around these desires instead of forming it around God's opinion of you. His preferences become secondary to your preferences. Okay? Anybody here any ever counsel someone with anorexia or bulimia? Can you convince that person they're skinny enough? If you even enter into that conversation, you've already lost. Because what you could, I mean, I, I've wasted many hours in, in my ignorance trying to, to tell someone that 9-0 on the scale is actually unhealthily small, okay? Now, that's not a wrong thing to say, by the way. If you said that, that's great. That's fine. You're not doing anything wrong. But I'm saying, if you are trying to do that, what you might be inadvertently doing is simply entering into her evaluation system and say, no, you do measure up. The problem is not whether she measures up to that evaluation system. The problem is the evaluation system itself. Does that make sense? So that's, that's why self-hatred is such a, I was going to say wonderful, but hear me out. It's a wonderful gauge. It's a wonderful insight into the desires that have captured a person's heart. It's a, it's a strong indicator about what they're measuring themselves according to. Okay. So the, that next uh, major point there, you do not have the authority to condemn anyone including yourself, okay? My mom's words were brilliant theology. She was pointing out that I am not God, and therefore I don't have the authority to condemn myself. 
The Apostle Paul established this basic principle of self-perception in his letter to the believers of Corinth. And these, these believers in Corinth were filled with their opinions about Paul. So if you know 1st and 2nd Corinthians at all, you know that in the background, you have these super apostles coming in and criticizing Paul. Now, super apostles, that's hard for us to even translate. Okay, are these like, are they wearing a cape and an ass on there? Like, what does that even mean? What it was, guys, is people who were far more attractive, impressive, eloquent, well-funded, far more so than Paul, were coming in and saying, hey, listen to us. Why are you listening to that loser, Paul? Do you hear how he talks? He's got a lisp. You see, he, he can't see well. He, he's a loser. Like, not, not only is he a loser, like when you actually see him, look at all the suffering he's gone through. Like, you want to follow a guy who's getting beat, who's getting thrown out of everything? You only get thrown out of a synagogue if you're a jerk. Don't, don't, don't go with that guy. Go with us. So this was the message the Corinthians were receiving about Paul. And Paul, if you think about it, he was a human being, right? Paul could have been intimidated by that. But instead, he slaps down this principle in 1 Corinthians 4. Go ahead and turn there. He slaps down this principle that what you think of me and even what I think about myself doesn't matter. It's what God thinks of me. And in that way, I'm not reading Paul as a teenage girl in, 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 in modern-day high school in, in the United States. I'm not, not making it merely about self-image here. But I am saying it's a very strong implication for it. Paul could have been intimidated by these things. And he's like, look, your standard of measurement and even my own standard of measurement doesn't matter. The only standard of measurement that matters is what God thinks. Okay? So... 1 Corinthians, i got to turn there myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to just look at verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact... I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So again, I want to be really clear here. This passage is not about self-hate. I'm deriving an implication about self-hate from what this passage is addressing. And that is this. Paul's saying, look, you're evaluating my ministry based on certain standards. I'm, I'm not going to accept those standards. They're garbage. And I could erect my own standards, but those would be garbage too. The only standards that ma matter is, am I a steward who's found faithful? That's, that's his main logic. So, so look at verse 1. Paul perceived himself primarily in what specific role would you say? Yeah, as a servant of Christ. And a steward. You know what a steward is? What's a steward? This is actually really instructive for people struggling with self-hate. What's a steward? Someone who takes care of something. Does he own that something he's taking care of? No. It's someone who takes care of something that belongs to someone else. 
Did you know that you're a steward? Did you know that you're a steward of everything that you've been given? Because it's not yours. It's God's. That includes your body. So if you don't like the way you look, and you look in the mirror, and you're tempted towards despising yourself, guess what? It's not yours. You don't own it. God owns it, and he glories in it. You're merely a steward of it. You merely act faithfully or unfaithfully in the way you manage it. Okay? So Paul saw himself as a steward. That's the role of his self-perception, and it guarded him against this potential insecurity or, 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 or disruption that could have, have happened to him. Verse 2. Looking at that, what is the standard of judgment for that role? Okay, so I'm a steward. What is God's standard of judgment as to whether I'm a good steward or a bad steward? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Yeah, trustworthiness. Faithfulness. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that wonderful? Shouldn't that free you up a little bit? God's, God's standard of your stewardship, friends, is not how much money you earn. It's not how pretty you are in conformity to the cultural standards of your specific culture. And by the way, just go to the art museum and look at some medieval art to know that those change big time. Okay? It's not, it's not, it's not all of these other measurements that in your culture are, are constantly thrust in your face. If you're a pastor in here, it is not about the size of your church. It is not how many hits you get on your blog. Okay? Ladies, if it's if 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 you are judged in our culture by everything from the appearance and the way you look to your ability to uh, perform at the job place, to your ability to have perfectly behaved children, to your ability to be the social hub and whatever it is, right? Those are not God's standards of measurement. We see God's standards of measurement here. It's faithfulness. Are you being trustworthy with the measure of what God has given you? There's huge comfort in that. Verse 3. As you look at that, let me ask you this, or let me point out, people do not have authority to condemn or exonerate me uh, entirely is what he's saying there, right? So look, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you or any human court. That's what Paul's saying. And then verse four, not even I have the authority to condemn or exonerate myself ultimately, okay? And so what that means, verse five, our judgment in this present life, right? They're insufficient. They're short-sighted. They're they're shallow. He's saying, wait till the Lord comes. He's going to the one that brings light. He's the one who actually has the authority to judge something as worthy or unworthy, as worthless or as meaningful. That's his job. Friends, you know what you see on display here? The virtue of humility. Humility is all over Paul's self-perception here. I don't have to prove myself to you, and I don't have to prove myself to myself. You know what's interesting? Uh, Ronnie and I were watching ESPN with the draft and stuff like that, and they always have the background stories when these guys get up on draft. And one of the constant themes you hear in our sports culture in the United States is, I don't have to prove myself to anybody else, but I'm going to prove myself to myself. Okay? That's actually super prideful and arrogant, right? I think Paul is saying something very different than that. He's like, he's saying, look, I, who am I? I, I want to be faithful. And it's and it's, and it's up to God to make that pronouncement or not. 
So, so he avoids entering even this quagmire of evaluating himself in that particular way. So self-loathing is wrong, not primarily because of who you are, but because of who God is. Isn't that interesting? So I don't want people to self-hate, and, and people do have an intrinsic value. That's a wonderful thing, and I think we appeal to that intrinsic value. You shouldn't hate yourself because you're not hate-worthy in that, in that sense. Okay? But, but, but more importantly, I think what I'm trying to establish is it's because of who God is. He didn't give you the authority to hate yourself. If, if his disposition towards you is love, how dare you hate yourself? So then the next point, again, is you, there's another tool to help unpack this for people. Who you wish you were is being informed by someone. Okay? Who you wish you were, again, the, the desires you're measuring yourself by and you find yourself lacking so you hate yourself. Who you wish you were is being informed by someone. So in this way, Paul escaped from the desires that could have controlled his self-perception. Desires that the Corinthian believers were kind of pressing in on him. These super apostles were pressing in on him. They were more impressive. They looked better. They spoke better. They succeeded better. Paul, why are you such a loser? And like the, these sunlit gods of the junior high high school team, right? These, these super apostles had qualities that Paul would have naturally been tempted to want for himself. But similarly, who you wish you were, who you wish you were now here and now, is being informed by what your culture, what your church, what your family, what the circles of relationships that surround you, what they value is tempting for you to evaluate yourself by. You're, you're, you're tempted to imbibe those values and measure yourself by them. It could be athletic prowess. Some of you are from athletic families and you are the one who wasn't athletic. Okay? That, that, that affects self-perception. For some, it's physical beauty, as we said. For others, or in other circles, it's leadership ability. Natural intelligence, maybe, or a knack for business. It's whatever's prized in your circles. You just have to realize that you're, you are going to be influenced in how you evaluate yourself by, the, by what you see valued around you. The problem with self-hatred is that God does not value these things in the same way that your circles do. So in other words, you're listening to people more than you're listening to God. You're listening to the cultural values more than you listen to God. You know, can I just point out something really interesting? Since every time I come to Southern California, which isn't all that much, unfortunately, this place is amazing, okay? Every time I come to Southern California, I'm always reminded how beautiful people are here, okay? And I don't think it's because of any genetic stock that you have here, okay? I think it's because... One of the cultural values of Southern California that is different from my Midwest upbringing is there is more of an emphasis on external appearance, okay? And so, so I think people generally are using prettier and putting more effort into everything from makeup to hair color to awesome cars to, like, everyone's, like, trim and fit. It's amazing. And then I go back to Cleveland, Ohio, where everyone drinks beer and eats pizza, Okay. <laughs> 
But lest you think I'm criticizing SoCal, I'm just saying that seems to be a stronger cultural value of measurement here. But when I go back to Cleveland, Ohio, you know what the cultural value of measurement there is? You work your butt off all week. You got to be known as a hard worker. And then you party hard all weekend because all you have to live for is beer and pizza in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. But my point to you is that they're not, they're not so concerned with external appearances. They're evaluating you on other things. Are you at that party? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Or did you put in a, a, a are, are, you, are you really doing the 60-hour week or are you just a wuss doing a 40-hour week, right? Things like that. My point to you is wherever God has dropped you, there's going to be these certain influences. You've got to pay attention to that. And when you're counseling someone, you have to help them pay attention to that in their lives. Self-hate is sinful because it is a failed attempt to put confidence in the flesh. Okay? It's a failed attempt. If you want to write this down, we won't, we won't flip there, but Philippians chapter 3. Many of you are familiar with Paul's logic there, where he says, hey, if anyone had reason for confidence of the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I had all these amazing things going for me. Okay? Now, when we read that list, we think, why are you proud you were circumcised the eighth day? That's like really weird. Okay? But, but keep in mind, in his culture, if you wanted to be a cut above everyone else, you had to have this pedigree and these credentials. So for us, that just translates to different things. You, we, we sort of shove in front of people's faces the credentials for being a super Christian or the credentials for being like a, a desirable cut above everybody else. We shove these things into people's face. And Paul said, look, I was on top of all that. I had all of it. I had reason to be confident in the flesh. But you know how he goes on, right? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior. In fact, he counted them as, our ESV translates it nice and tidy, rubbish, right? We become British all of a sudden when we're reading this thing. That's rubbish. I had a friend on a translation committee one time that was trying to get the committee to put a bad word in the Bible there. Because Paul's language there actually means excrement, and it would have really offended the people reading it. Okay. Now, I think they made the right choice not putting a bad word in the Bible. But my point to you is, I count that as toilet material in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, so it's fascinating, guys. Paul's logic is he wasn't, he wasn't sort of tempted by self-hate. He was looking at it from the top of it, like I had that all going on. But, but we might not have that stuff in our lives. And so we're looking up at it, wishing we had it. But the problem isn't trying to scramble to get to the top side. The problem is the standard itself, the coin itself, right? The standard is confidence in the flesh. Or the problem is confidence in the flesh. So hating yourself because you're not good at sports means that you're insisting that athleticism is essential to a person's value. And that's not what God says. Or hating yourself because you're not physically attractive in your own estimation means you're insisting that outward beauty is essential to a person's value. And that is not what God says. Or hating yourself because you're not more important in your workplace or more successful 
in your career or more influential amidst your friendships is to insist that career success, that 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 social engagement is essential to a person's value. And that is not what God says. And so. So so. Repenting of self-hate is an act of humility because it's recognizing that I don't have the right standard of measurement here. And again, when, when, you're, when you're counseling someone struggling with, say, anorexia, you're helping her to see that the standards by which she is measuring herself must be set aside. They must, they must, they must be repented of. And until that occurs, and again, you're not, it's not a finger in the face, repent, you sinner. That you, you guys know that's not what I mean. But it is a, do you see that as long as you live under this standard, you will continue to wither away. But God created you for so much more. You need to listen to what he says about you. I do want to say, just in light of what I just said when I, when I say the word repent, I want to make it clear, as I tried to with my opening example, insecurity is not, it's not merely a sin. It's also suffering, okay? That's, that's often the case with these complex problems. There is sin involved. I'm, I'm, taking, I'm trying to put confidence in the flesh, and I'm failing at it, okay? There is sin involved, like I just said, that we need to repent of. But, but remember, this person is suffering, it's simultaneously suffering. A fuller perspective recognizes that, that, that self-hate, insecurity, it has been conditioned by factors around a person. And, and here's what I really want to emphasize here. The more extreme those factors in their environment, the, the greater the degree of suffering. I think the greater the degree we see their self-hate as suffering rather than intentional sin. So, for instance, you know what comes to mind? Some people were raised by cruel fathers who told them all the time how fat they were or how stupid they were or how worthless they were. That person will most likely struggle with self-hate when they grow up. Don't merely rebuke them for, for trying to live by confidence in the faith or confidence in the flesh. Okay? You have to recognize, look, you have been conditioned in a certain way because here's, here's the biblical logic behind it. God made you to trust what your parents say. That's actually how the faith is passed down. This is why the Shema was so important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then you talk about it, and you're going out, and you're coming in when you sit down, when you talk, when you eat. All the time, talk about those things, because God designed what parents and caregivers and people of greater influence, he designed for what then to say to have a huge impact on forming the beliefs of the person under their care. We should praise God for that. Otherwise, like, we'd all have, like, random belief systems in our families, you know? But, but my point to you is that can also, through sin, become skewed and go wrong. So if somebody, instead of saying truth, is saying falsity like that again and again and again, it will have an impact. So just be mindful, friends. Even in this point, I want to make sure that we have the proper caveat that you have to recognize the suffering element of it. So as I said, this is especially true in abusive situations, cruel situations or abusive situations. You know, when, when someone's been sexually abused, 
there's even more complexity and more layers of manipulation that go on because it's never just someone, it's never just a guy taking physical advantage of a little girl. He's also telling her things about herself while he's doing it. You asked for it. I don't remember asking for it. Well, you did. Oh, did I ask for it? Does this feel good to you? Because if it does, that means something about you. You must really like this. And so what I'm saying to you is it warps them and they become confused. What's them? What was told to them? Then they just, they, they can be rife with self-hate. So often people from situations like this form deep patterns of insecurity because, because the nature of their surroundings were insecure, right? They were not secure as God, as God ideally designed them to be. And so these patterns get carried through. So, you know, I've counseled people where insecurity is less pronounced and, and self-hate is less pronounced, and I've counseled people where it's more pronounced, okay? I would just give you this tip. Generally speaking, when it's more pronounced and it captures them, you, you probably do need to do more exploration as to why it's that deeply ingrained and that deeply established, okay? And I'm not saying every time you're going to uncover trauma or abuse, but, but you will frequently, Okay? Okay, and then the final point, and I want to make sure we have enough time for questions. The opposite of self-hatred is not self-love, but humility. Self-hatred is so tricky because it seems like a form of humility. After all, you're, you, you know, you're holding a low opinion of yourself. But again, that low opinion still flows from those same set of wishes, that same wrongful standard of evaluation. So humility means submitting your wishes about yourself to God in how he actually made you, okay? That's what humility is. It's submitting what I wish were true of me to, to how God actually made me and the situation he actually put me in with all of its limitations. That's to accept the will of God. So do you, do you wish you were taller than you are? Do you wish you were born into a wealthier family than you were? Do you wish you were part of the mainstream ethnic culture? Do you wish you were part of a minority ethnic culture? Do you wish, do you wish that you had a dad that had a business that gave you like a CFO position right out of college? Yes, the answer is yes, we all wish that. <laughs> You get my point. You, you all have wishes that were true, something different about you. That, that, that is part of why you're tempted towards self-hate. And humility means saying, Lord, I embrace where you've placed me, how you've placed me, how you've wired me, how you have arranged me, and you are good and wise. In fact, you are better and wiser than I am. Your opinions are better than mine. So humility means submitting your wishes for yourself to God's wishes for you. And what God wishes for you, you know, you know, God's primary purpose for you, his primary wish for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ would be formed in you. And friends, in the, in the mystery and the complexity and the beauty of God's providential care for you, to form Christ in you 
he often has to rob you of the other things that you really want. And I don't, I don't exactly know why that's the case. I don't know why he chooses to do this. I don't know why sanctification has to come through so much pain. I don't know why a proper desire for Jesus requires so much stripping away of other desires. Can't you just sanctify us immediately? Can't you just make me see myself and see you and see other people immediately from your perspective? Can't you just do this? But God is wiser than us and he's chosen to make it a process. I have a feeling to, to, you know, use some Pauline logic here. I have a feeling it's to prove to the angels and the demons that this drama of human redemption is beautiful and true and deep. And he has people who love him freely and learn to love him. So he wants his character to increasingly characterize the way you are, whatever your unique gifting and in whatever your unique context. In other words, he's far more concerned that you are characterized by love than by the other things that you focus on about yourself. So stopping this cycle of self-hatred requires humility to give over to God your dreams about yourself. This is the best exchange we could ever do, since by doing it, we gain clear eyes to the one truth that is far more powerful than self-hatred could ever be. And that truth is this. In Christ, we always have everything we need, and we are exactly who we were made to be. God delights in us. Isn't that amazing? When you look in the mirror, you very rarely delight in yourself. When you see how ugly you can treat the people you love most, when you see that you overspent on your credit card again, when you see that you stumbled and fell into that same stupid sin that you, that, that you should have been over 20 years ago, and you do not delight in yourself. The gospel of Jesus Christ means that God sees you with the same love that he has for his own son, Jesus Christ. And there is a deep delight in the father to the son. So that's why I can say to you how I began and that Jesus loves people who hate themselves. So I think we, yeah, we got a good amount of time. Got 11, 12 minutes for some questions. Anything we can unpack in the particularities there? Hope that made sense to you. Yes, sir. So going back to um, the cultural values, is it called, but going to your friend's example, like what if no one around him values the things that he's condemning himself for? Is yeah. it possible that it's self-driven, it's not culturally driven? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the question I'm repeating for the sake of the recording is it what if what if you look at the guy's cultural value set and you just don't see strong influences there and it seems to be like coming from him his own self. I would just respond and say that's very possible and that's very real. Um, I don't mean to imply that it's always merely something that we're taking in from other people. I do think uh, our personalities, our, our unique wiring also kind of contributes to this too. Some of us are more self-reflective. Some of us, I think, 
in being more self-reflective, we are naturally more aware of our deficiencies than other people who are less self-reflective. Guys, I actually wish I were less self-reflective. I wish I could have the personality that almost you wonder if they even are aware of what's going on inside them. It would be a, it would be a wonderful, blissful thing, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you'll be a jerk to everybody, but hey. But, but you know, with my friend in particular, he was, he was born, I mean, his parents even, even said, like, when you were two and three years old, you were making, like, self-critical statements all the time. And so I'm not saying there's a gene of self-criticism. I'm not going that way. But what I am saying is his unique personality is he thinks about everything. When you, talk, when you try to talk to him about football, he wants to talk about, like, uh, of existential philosophy. Like, he just, that's where he goes. And so I just think that's a, like, like this actually might be a help, helpful generic tip to you all. All our personality features, whatever they would be, they can be used faithfully as a strength. They can be used by the flesh as a weakness. And so for him, this guy is remarkably gifted at just understanding the implications and the interrelatedness of ideas and things. And he's just very smart and, and, and actually has helped me quite a bit on feedback from my teaching and other things like that. So it's a huge strength, but I think, I think the flesh kind of can, and Satan can kind of twist that and get a hold of it and use it to turn inward in a way that he forgets Christ. Is that, is that helpful to you? And interestingly enough, his, his personality is one where he, he thinks culture, everybody's a bunch of morons, right? He, he, just, he doesn't want to buy into the cultural scheme of things. So he's very sort of insular like that. Yes? Right, uh, two questions. So like a lot of people will use self-hate to help them repent, which I don't know. I don't think that's a good thing. But I wanted to ask, what, how can they use godly grief or how do they distinguish between godly grief and self-hate and then my second question is what's some homework we can give to people that are dealing with self-hate yeah that's a great question yeah one of the things that makes this tricky is if you if you anybody puritan readers here i love the puritans they refer to self-hate and they do so positively but they're not meaning what i'm talking about here that's the that's the elasticity of language right what they mean by that is a proper despising of the sin I find inside me. That's good, as I said this morning, like we should be aware of and not side with the sin that's inside us. That's what they mean by that. So, you know, you mentioned godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, you know, 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow leads to change. Worldly sorrow just leads, sorrow just, it doesn't go anywhere. It just leads to sort of this cycle of hemming and hawing. Um, so, so maybe the, the, the other question that led to is homework. I will often just simply give them the types of questions that force them to trace that reason they hate themselves back to the desire, right? So I don't see a marker here, but if I had a, if I had a marker, you can imagine with me, right? So tell me why you hate yourself. I'm fat. Okay. So then I'll draw a, yeah, nice. Comes in handy to have a son around. Okay. So tell me why you hate yourself. I'm fat, okay? Can you help me understand maybe? Can you trace back with me? What, what desire do you think? 
leads you to that? What do you want? So, so here you don't like yourself because you're fat. What do you wish were true of you? Well, I'm skinny, duh. Yeah, but what would that gain you? You got to keep pushing for always the deeper answer. What would that gain you? What do you think you're, 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 you're motivating your worth on? So I'll just supply them with a bunch of questions like that. Usually I'll do that with them in the moment because a lot of times it's hard for people to even know what you're talking about. But you kind of prime them, and then the homework I give is fill this in. Describe this more than what we had. And then they come back and we talk it through, and it's a series of self-reflections. It's typically what I do. And I'll give them scriptures, actually, like Philippians chapter 3 to help sort of give a biblical framework for their self-evaluation. Good. Other, other questions? Yes. I hope this erases. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Yes. Self-hate um, is very damaging to the culture relationships. It's also something that sneaks up quickly and blindsides you. So... When you're at the point accepting what you're saying so far, we're like, we're, we're up to this. In the midst of change, right, and you catch yourself, you're going down that wrong path. I think the proper response I keep finding over and over is like, you know, totally in mind, praising the Lord, loving the other. And do, do you have a practical it's like the relationship is so important. Um, the repairing, mm -hmm. reaching out to somebody else. I mm -hmm. mean, that's a part of the healing that's yep. going to be yeah. restoring going on inside of us. Yeah. Yep. I'm kind of saying in practical terms kind of how to. Yeah. Okay. So once you've worked through someone to actually understand yeah. what they're measuring themselves by, and maybe you started them down the path of being able to, in humility, start to open their hands before the Lord. I love what you're asking because part of that process is to take seriously the harm that that has caused on their key relationships. Mm -hmm. And so then I think it's the, the coaching and the prepping them on how to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And it can be a huge step in this process. So to, to help them have the conversation, so if it's a wife to the husband or husband to the wife or roommate to roommate or son to mother or whatever it is, you know, I realize how selfish I often am to you in not even asking into your concerns and not being focused on anything that you're concerned with. Can I give you a little insight, I think, as to why that is? It's because I think I get, I think I, I just get in these cycles of self-hate, which is a form of, I'm just realizing now from scripture, it's a form of obsess, obsessing about myself. And it robs me, it robs me from sharing, sharing concerns for you. Will you forgive me? And then that starts to be an established expectation between them and their relationship. Like, hey, if we start seeing these patterns reemerge again, we now have something to call this. And I can pray with you about it. So, so that other person who's been in the past harmed, they can say, hey, I think, you're, I think you're going back into this old pattern. I'm going to pray for you about this because the way you're coming across is not right. And it becomes a compassionate way to confront them rather than just merely a, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. How would you encourage or counsel someone who's spiraling to self-hate? Didn't start with like formational influences as a child, but it was a, a choice that they made as an adult, mm. like a consenting adult, and then that is almost an excuse, shame, 
mm -hmm. an excuse yes. for further self-harm. So I'm specifically thinking of, say, a woman who chose an abortion as an adult, mm -hmm. um, various reasons for it. And then, as, you know, later on in life, yeah. Yeah. It's a very, that's a very deep and complex question. And what I'm about to say is not fair to it, to, to how deep that is. But, it, but this is just a principle for you. In, in once, I, I've just found in scenarios like that in counseling, as we talk it through and we ask what the shame is from, why are you holding yourself hostage? What are you wishing were true about your life if you go back and change? Oftentimes it boils down to, I don't want to be the kind of person who's capable of sin at this level. And then you just gently point out to them, I even would write that out in front of them and say, do you think that is a godly wish or an ungodly wish? Do you think that squares with what Jesus says or not? Because let me take you to this place, Luke 18. I want to read you this little part about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I want to read you God's heart towards people who are so sinful they can't even look up. And what you do is you show them the, I might use the word idolatry. I actually don't use that word all the time. And by the way, I'm a, I'm a certified biblical counseling dude, like, I, like idolatry. But sometimes, guys, we overuse that metaphor. That's only one of many metaphors in Scripture. I hope you all realize that, okay? Um, I may or may not use the word idolatry, but that idea, I don't want to need grace this bad. I don't want to be the kind of person who could ever do something like this. You say to them, but that, is, that was not God's will in your life, and he wants to show you a grace that's radical enough to reach even that. That's his will. And that's hard to accept. It's hard to accept. And the reason it's hard to accept, and again, I, I'm careful with the P word, pride, to give it too quickly in scenarios like that. But if you really push and, 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 and unearth that, it is a form of pride. So is that at least helpful principle? Okay. Good. All right, folks, you have been in class all day. I will not stretch this out any further. Thank you for your attention. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.